Welcome to the Ocean Grove Camp Meeting Association's podcast. In Mark 16:15, Jesus says, "Go throughout the whole world and preach the gospel to every person." This good news sermon was given in the Great Auditorium in Ocean Grove, New Jersey. Visit oceangrove.org to learn how we are fulfilling our mission to provide people of all ages with opportunities for spiritual birth, growth, and renewal through worship, educational, cultural, and recreational programs at the Jersey Shore. All right, so let's turn our attention to introducing our wonderful speaker this morning. Um, so Jessica Gradone is from uh, we're, actually, first of all, we're thrilled to have her back. This is her second summer with us. She is the Dean of the Chapel at Asbury Theological Seminary or University in Wilmore, Kentucky. And as you'll soon witness, she is a gifted pastor, teacher, speaker, and writer. I'm sure you're all saying the same thing as I have said that I'm personally excited to hear because of that revival that broke out at Asbury has just been known throughout the nation. So hopefully we're gonna hear a tiny bit about that, but that was so exciting. Um, as I mentioned, Jessica will be teaching Bible Hour a week, and there, she will also be doing a book signing Friday after Bible Hour, um, Out of Chaos, her book, on, so at the Hub on Friday at 10 o'clock. All right, a special welcome to her mom and her daughter, so thank you for joining us, and have, enjoy your time in Ocean Grove. So welcome, Jessica. We're excited to hear from you in a, in a few minutes. Well, good morning. I want to thank you for um, your warm welcome for my family and I this week. We were so privileged last summer to spend a weekend here at Ocean Grove. And so when the invitation came to come back for a whole week, we jumped at the chance. Um, I want to speak to you just a few words about keeping in touch with old friends. It's a practice that's changed for us over the years with the advent of social media and text messaging. People we might have lost touch with long ago are now part of our everyday lives through some of those technological advances. I have an old friend from high school that I keep in touch with, the place I keep in touch with most friends from that era, over Facebook. She is a single mom of two young children and uh, she is at the same time both stressed out a lot of the time and self-assured. She is both independent and I can tell in some of her posts longing for help. She says that on especially hard days, she deals with that stress of getting it all done by getting up in the morning, looking in the mirror and saying these words to herself, you've got this. Um, you've got this is what it says on her Facebook wall. It's the caption underneath her selfies. Uh, you got this is sort of like her signature hashtag, what we once would have called a mantra. And while she posts it for the world, I think mostly it's a message for herself. It's a pretty good message, isn't it? I mean, if you have to get yourself psyched up to do hard things, you've got this might be the message that you wanna hear and it sounds super confident, but the problem is, on the days that she posts, you've got this, I can sort of tell that she doesn't. There are days when having a, a mantra or a hashtag just doesn't work. Um, the days when that motto to start the day is clearly not what she's saying by the end of the day. When the kids are sick or the child support is late again or her boss at one of her jobs wants her to pull extra hours. So. 
what does she do when that self-reliant posturing runs out before the end of the day? Well, I think that's a good question for all of us, figuring out who we are when what we are is not enough. We, we would like to prepare and present ourselves for our best days, you know, the days we write about on our resumes or our Facebook walls. But what about the days when what we have just kind of runs out, when nothing in our experience prepares us for the days when we clearly don't got this? That's where I think we need a, a strong theology of desperation and an understanding really at the heart of it that desperation is a gift. And so this morning I want to read to you a story of desperation from the Gospel of John, the second chapter, beginning with verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour is not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each of them holding 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water out knew. And then he called the groom aside and said to him, everyone brings out the choice wine first and the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you, you have saved the best till now. Now what Jesus did there in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. This gospel story of Jesus's first miracle is what happens when we embrace the gift of desperation. Jesus and his band of newly recruited disciples show up at a wedding along with Jesus's mother, Mary. And weddings were a little bit different in those days. This was a multiple day party, a one week or maybe even two week long wedding feast where the groom and his family had invited people from far and wide to come and stay and offered them hospitality. In those days, it was the groom that put on the party. And this meant it was disastrous when the wine ran out in the middle of the celebration. Now, no one else acknowledged the problem. Nobody else was talking about it except Jesus' mother, Mary. Mary is the only one to acknowledge it. Your, your theme this summer, speaking the truth in love, is epitomized here. Sometimes somebody has to speak up and say, everything's not right here. That's what Mary does. does. So she says, Jesus, they have no more wine. That seems like a simple observation, except don't you love it that mothers can make simple observations that are not only observations? 
Your socks are in the middle of the living room floor. This is not simply an observation. And so Jesus makes, uh, Jesus's mother makes an observation, but it's not only an observation. Jesus, she says, they have no more wine. And Jesus responds, woman, really? Woman? I mean, Jesus seems a little sassy here. Woman, what concern is that of mine or yours? My hour has not yet come. If we look at this through our own cultural lens, it seems that the first miracle here might be that Mary didn't just take Jesus out right then and there. <laughs> Woman? Seriously? I had a friend back when I was a student in seminary who decided that it was okay because of Jesus's model here to address the women in his life as just woman. Woman, he would say to us, woman, can I borrow your notes? I missed class yesterday. He decided if it was good enough for Jesus, it was good enough for him. And we let him know that crucifixion was also good enough for Jesus. <laughs> and so he might want to expect a response similar in tone. In any case, Mary doesn't seem to mind. She doesn't listen when he seems to object. She simply tells the servants what I believe is one of the best commands in Scripture. Do whatever he tells you to do. Is there a more relevant line for us today? And so Jesus turns to the servants and he asks them to bring the water jugs used for ritual purification. Jews used these large water jugs, 20 or 30 gallons in each, for ritual washing to make themselves pure for worship. And this is a Jewish household, a Jewish wedding feast, so somewhere in this house are these 20 or 30 gallon jugs. And that's a lot of work, because he tells the servants to fill them up to the top with water. That's about 150 gallons of extra fetching and carrying, extra work for these servants who were already burdened with extra work and extra guests, not to mention the 12 that Jesus brought with him who tagged along that week, who, let's just be honest, may be the reason the wine ran out in the first place. <laughs> but then, then something remarkable happens. Once they have done what Jesus told them to do, the water in the jars, somehow, at some moment, we don't know when, but I'll tell you the servants did, at some moment, it was no longer water, but wine. And when the head steward, the master of ceremonies for this event, tastes the wine, it, it's actually far better than anything he's ever tasted before. And he calls the groom, because remember, the groom is responsible for all of the things at the party, the wine and the food. And, and he says to this groom, who's clearly hidden the menu malfunction that's happened, what's going on? This is great. You've saved the best wine for the end when most people would have served it at the beginning. And we're told this is the first of the signs, the miracles that Jesus did here in the Gospel of John, and that his disciples believed in him. My husband Jim and I have been married for 18 years this year, 
And uh, we had both been in a lot of weddings before ours came around. We had a lot of friends that got married before us. Jim had been an usher and a groomsman in many weddings, and I had been a, a bridesmaid and then a pastor officiating at lots of weddings. We had both been collecting ideas for our own wedding for years, adding to our wedding bucket list. And so when our own wedding rolled around, we just, we did all of them. We opened with hymns. We sang worship choruses. We had multiple scripture readings. There was a full sermon, no little homily for us. We had narrowed it down, the guest list, to 500 of our closest friends. And we served them all communion. It was glorious, and it was over an hour and a half long. And the thing about having 500 guests is when you invite them, you also have to figure out how to feed them. And here, the, the bride was a preacher and the groom a professor, and let's just say that at the wedding of a preacher and a teacher, you're not gonna have a surf and turf buffet. That's not what's being served. So we came up with a solution, and it was this. We got married at two o'clock in the afternoon. And if you ever get an invitation, to a wedding at two o'clock in the afternoon. You know what that means? You're just getting cake. Actually, we had some wonderful hors d'oeuvres too. I won't bore you with that. But even if we had elected to feed all of those people, and even if we had run out of food or drink in the middle, it, it would have been slightly embarrassing and inconvenience, but it would have been nothing compared to what happened at this wedding in Jesus' day where the wine ran out. Remember, this is a week-long wedding celebration. Wine was the main pure beverage of the day, and this is a breach of hospitality. They've entered a contract with these guests just by inviting them and promising to provide for them, and so it was shocking, shame-inducing, reputation-ending for the wine to run out. It could have begun this couple's life together with their becoming outcasts in this community and all of their families with them. It was so serious, friends, that the, the guests actually could have sued the groom for breach of contract when the wine ran out. So this situation was desperate. And I love for so many reasons that this is the first miracle that Jesus performs in the Gospel of John because here is someone who runs out, who is desperate, someone unable to help themselves. They don't got this. And someone has to tell the truth about that. Someone has to turn to Jesus and ask for his help, his help and suddenly this wine is overflowing and abundant. And this first miracle is a, a template for all the other miracles to come because desperation always precedes a miracle. Think about it. In the Gospels, where do miracles happen? Someone is blind or lame or dead. Someone's child is sick or dying or demon-possessed. Thousands of people are hungry and there's not enough food for them. Ten people are walking around with leprosy a woman is bent over. A man's hand is withered beyond recognition. A woman is bleeding for 12 years. A child is dead. These are desperate situations. Jesus is the miracle worker of desperate people. Because after all, if you're not desperate, 
Why would you need a miracle anyway? If you're not desperate, what do you need Jesus for? Um, Many of you have heard possibly about the revival that happened this past spring at Asbury University and Asbury Seminary where I work. And it's still sort of mind blowing for us that the whole world actually heard about what was going on in our tiny town of less than 6,000 people, two stoplights. Um, Over 50,000 people were in our town at once. Why did they come? Why was the world talking about it? What? were people so interested in. I believe it's because the world is desperate for God to move and act. And we witnessed that in a very powerful and real way. The presence of God was felt in worship services filled with young people coming from everywhere to worship God. I mean, every continent in the world, people flew. Just to be there, it was like the woman who just wanted to touch the hem of Jesus' garment. And what I learned from that among many, many things is in the midst of the power of God and the desperation of people to be near God, something combustible happens. God reaching desperate people, that's where miracles happen. And so in our own lives, even our everyday lives, no matter what room we're in, what space we're in, no matter if we're in a crowd or alone, desperation, our felt need for God is a gift. It's the gift that teaches us we can't do it on our own. That every time we say to ourselves, I've got this, that we're tricking ourselves. That we are, every one of us, in need of Jesus' power and help. But to tell you the truth, it's only the desperate who receive it. And boy, do they receive. This is why the humble get lifted up, the poor in spirit are blessed. This is how the weak are made strong and the meek inherit the earth. They, they've already run out and they just can't do it anymore. So they don't pretend. Desperation is the gift of not being able to pretend anymore. And so where we run out, that's not failure. In fact, where we run out may be the most fruitful and wonderful part of our lives because where we run out is where we run to Jesus. Just like those at the wedding did. Where we run out is the primary place that we stop pretending that we have the strength to do it and turn to Jesus's power. So the question really this morning is, if you haven't hit rock bottom yet, how do we get you there faster? (laughs) Nobody wants that, right? But the truth is there are really two ways to get to the foot of the cross. You can fall there or you can kneel there and ask for God's help. This is why humility, confession, repentance, soul-searching prayer, this is why these things are gifts. Because you can run to God before your own strength runs out. Desperation is the gift of honesty. They all stood there at a wedding pretending that nothing was wrong and Mary spoke the truth in love and a miracle happened. So we have to be able to lean into our own desperation to find the place where we will run to Jesus. I love that this miracle is first, but I have lots of questions about it. It happens in private. Even the guests don't know. Possibly the groom, the master of ceremonies, the host certainly doesn't know. What is this miracle doing first in Jesus's ministry? I mean, if it were me, I might've fed the 5,000 first. That makes a splash, right? I might have raised someone from the dead. That'll get their attention. But 
Clearly, Jesus isn't seeking attention here because the only witnesses to this miracle are women and servants, and neither of them are a credible testimony in a court of law in those days. So I began looking for answers to why this miracle might have been first in John's lineup, and I came across an answer that, to be honest, really bothered me. There was a scholar, a commentator, who was also searching for answers, and he came up with one, answered it in this way. Here's why he said this miracle was first. Some people, he said, some people think a Christian must, must not be too lighthearted, that Christians must be very serious. So here is Jesus performing his first miracle, helping, themselves, helping people enjoy themselves and have fun. This story, the man says, tells me that Jesus' primary concern is to help individuals and to make them happy. And I don't know which word bothered me more, individuals or happy, because I don't see God's grand plan unfolding in either of those places. And it made me so upset that I had to look for other answers. Where is it that God's concern is to help individuals and make them happy? That's the frat party Jesus. No wonder the disciples would follow him after that. That's the self-help Jesus, the genie in the bottle Jesus, where we just say a few words and he does our every wish. That kind of Jesus, who's about raising my own happiness and filling my own individual requests, that sort of Jesus ceases to be Lord when things begin to go wrong in our lives. Job could not have worshiped that Jesus nor Naomi, nor the martyr Stephen, nor Jesus himself hanging on the cross. What is it that Jesus is trying to do here by performing this miracle first? I went back and looked at it again, and here's another recap of the conversation at the wedding between the mother and the son. It opens with these words, Mary turning to Jesus, they have run out of wine. Here's where I want to give just a little commercial about the Bible Hour this week that we'll be walking through on these mornings. Um, this is a place where two passages in the Bible dance together. They connect with one another. And if we don't know that, we'll miss out. But the Bible has these links in it, almost like the blue words on your computer screen, an invitation to click and find out where it takes you. And here, it takes us to the prophet Isaiah. Anywhere in the prophets that someone mentions wine, it's either a sign that the people are longing for the Messiah to come and bring abundance, or a place where when the Messiah arrives, wine is flowing abundantly. It's not so much about drinking, it's about the longing for the Messiah. So here these words from Isaiah 24, verse seven. The new wine dries up, the vine withers, all the merrymakers groan. Does that sound like the wedding? And these words, following in Isaiah 25, this is on the realization if the Messiah arrives, here's what it looks like. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers the nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all their faces. He will remove the people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. Isn't that 
far more beautiful than a refill? In the prophets, when wine is mentioned, it's about the Messiah. And so Mary says, referencing Isaiah, they are out of wine. Not just the wedding is run dry, Jesus, but all of Israel has run dry. The world is dry, Jesus, and desperate for a Messiah. This nice Jewish wedding is out of wine, Jesus. Here's your sign. Messiah, come. And Jesus says to her, remember what he says? Woman, woman, my hour has not yet come. Now stop for just a minute. Did you really think Jesus would sass his mama at a wedding? He doesn't here take a tone in a way that I would say to my children, don't take that tone. No, he uses the word woman with honor and gentleness. The other places, remember, in the Bible where Jesus uses the word woman, he says in the garden, woman, why are you weeping? What a compassionate word. And the only other place he says it to Mary, his mother, is literally from the cross. Woman, behold your son. Son, here is your mother. And why does he say my hour is not yet come? Is that a way of saying, mom, get off my back, I'm not ready yet? That's our culture. Reading into it what those words meant in his time, in his culture, the only other place that Jesus says his hour is in John 17, 1, from the cross where he looks to heaven and prays, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Is this a spat between a mother and a son, a nagging and a refusal, a rebuke and a reluctant giving in? Or is this a rehearsal of all the prophecies that Messiah has come? And the premiere of that Messiah at a wedding where it builds this theology, this bridge from the wedding to the cross. The opening words of this passage, John says this, on the third day, Jesus was at a wedding. Why tell us that? What else happens on the third day? You said it yourself this morning in the creed, on the third day. He rose from the dead. Jesus is painting a picture, stretching out from his very first miracle. His premiere is going to be all about what he will do on the cross. And if Jesus enters the role of groom and provides the wine for the wedding, then there's only one figure missing here. Did you miss her? Where's the bride in all of this? How dare John write a story about a wedding and never introduce us to the bride? Has he not watched Bridezilla's say yes to the dress? The bride has to make an appearance. Well, here's another link in scripture for you. Anywhere in the New Testament that we're talking about a bride, we're talking about the church. So John is building this bridge for us from a wedding to the cross to another wedding. And the bride in the story is us, the church, where we, the church, show up and walk down the aisles, tattered and muddy, the bride who has run out of gifts and strength, the bride who has used up her best, where all we have to offer the groom is our own desperation, where we fall short, ragged and dirty, and fall at Jesus' feet. We tried our best, Jesus, but we ran out. And Jesus says, Bring the ritual purification jars. Fill them to the brim. We're going to need a lot of water for her. 
Desperation is a gift because it means running out of what we've been pretending to have all along and running to Jesus who has the gifts that we need. This is so much bigger than the frat party Jesus. We turn to Jesus with our little needs and Jesus responds with a large response. We asked for just enough wine not to embarrass ourselves in front of our friends and Jesus brought 150 gallons of grace. In premarital counseling, I tell couples that there's something that goes wrong in every wedding. Have you noticed that? There's just one little mistake, one little bobble or something big. I just try to get them used to the idea that not everything will be picture perfect on their big day. Sometimes at a wedding, someone faints or the bride's veil falls off, or a bridesmaid goes into labor, or the ring bearer just announces to the room that he has to go potty, or sometimes he just does. All of these are true stories. I do a lot of weddings. There's something at every wedding. At our wedding 18 years ago, our unity candle wouldn't light. This is a bad sign, friends, for a symbol of unity at a bride's wedding. And so the, the candle was way up high and we were dipping our candles low to try to light it over our heads. We were just dripping wax, covering that little wick up. The song played out that we were supposed to be lighting it during. The, the organist stopped, there was that awkward silence. 500 pairs of eyes were on us. We just stood there dripping wax down into the unity candle. Nothing was happening. And our, our pastor, who is actually my mentor and good friend, our pastor walked over, took the candle down, dried out the little wick with his fingers, held it sideways for us so that we could light it, put it back, total silence in the room, put it back on the stand, and he turned to the congregation, 500 of our closest friends, and said, it is lit. <laughs> and they did what you just did. They cracked up. And... I laughed and Jim laughed and for the first time in the whole hour and a half, he looked like himself. He was so nervous. And that precious moment, that mistake, that moment of desperation where we needed someone's help, that's the memory that I carry from that day. Stop telling yourself that you've got this on your own and let Jesus come and help. Your desperation will lead you to ask for a tiny refill, but he will bring grace. You want a little bit of help, he's got Messiah. Enough for the whole world. And as John says it in these words, we beheld his glory, the glorious presence of the Son of God. And from his fullness, from his fullness, we have received grace upon grace upon grace. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more about attending a worship service in the Great Auditorium, additional programs offered by the Ocean Grove Camp Meeting Association, and social media links, go to oceangrove.org.